Trace Church. Good morning. So good to be with you. I'm Dr. T. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trace. Can we just start by giving the guys who helped me hobble up here on stage a round of applause? I have, I have called them... Their, their new name is the Speaker Support Team, and I'm depending on them for the next six weeks to help me get around church. So this is not a preacher prop. Now, don't ever put it past a preacher to like put a brace on their knee and use that as a sermon illustration. This is really real. I had surgery on my leg a week ago, Friday, a week and a half ago. And let me tell you what happened uh, but before I tell you what happened, I want to I want to caution you. Okay, the guy that did this to my knee is a much younger, more handsome, more athletic man than me, and he's been wandering around Trace uh, th- at this Sunday. So if you see him around, I want to put a picture of him up on screen. If you see this young man around, uh, turn and run. This is my oldest son. His name's Adrian. He's twelve, and and so what happened was. A couple of months ago, he's like, hey, Dad, let's go out and play a game of basketball. And he's been playing a lot of basketball, and his shot's just getting nice. And so I'm like, all right, man, let me show you how it's done. <laughs> right? So, so we go outside, and we're playing to 10, and he starts beating me. And I'm not going like 100%, but I'm giving him enough where I should have been ahead. And so I, I say to myself, this is not going to happen on this day, this year in my life, right? Now. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the W. And so I get the ball at the top of the key right when I make the commitment. I'm going all out. And I hit him with just this nasty crossover. And I had a clean breakaway all the way to the basket. And I went for it like I was 18 years old. Couple of dribbles, two big steps. Plant this inside leg. I can hear him coming. And I spring off this as hard as I can. Sprained and partially tore my MCL. Completely tore my meniscus. I'm on crutches for six weeks. Moral of the story, don't mess with 12-year-old kids on a basketball court. I'm just teasing, but let me tell you what I really did when this happened. I, I, I really injured my knee badly, and I am grabbing this thing. Missed the shot, and I'm grabbing this thing, and I'm going, oh, dear Lord God, oh, Lord, Adrian, go get mom, go get mom. And if I'm going to use this, and I should use this as a preacher to transition into what I want to talk about today, it's that this was really excruciating pain. And in the midst of overwhelming, excruciating anguish, in the midst of that pain, I called out to my anchor. I called out to God because I needed stabilized and strengthened. I needed some help in the midst of that pain. And a lot of you in the audience today, maybe maybe your injury, maybe your pain isn't a physical pain like mine is. Perhaps you're battling with something emotional or maybe relational, or maybe spiritual. One of my roles at Trace is to meet with families from time to time, and my day job is as a counselor. And so for the last decade, I have walked with people through the seasons of greatest pain in their life. And over the course of that time, I've realized some things about pain, and this is not on the screen. I just wanted to share this with you just to help us get in touch with the need for an anchor, but pain has a, serious pain has a destabilizing effect in life. People who are dealing with seasons of pain start to question the meaning of life itself. They question whether or not the people they've trusted in in life are people they really should trust. 
they start to question some of their deeply, most deeply held convictions and beliefs in the midst of seasons of pain. Pain destabilizes us. Most of the people I've worked with over the last 10 years who have battled with significant pain would say, Trent, the pain I feel makes me feel so isolated. I feel like no matter how much I explain the story, nobody understands. I don't feel like I can relate to anybody. I don't feel like anybody can really truly know what I'm going through. And the more isolated people in the midst of pain feel, the more compounded their pain becomes. And it just feels like a vicious cycle of isolation and increased pain. And pain can eventually become overwhelming. When I'm talking about pain being overwhelming, I'm talking about my heart in seasons of my life because of the pain I've endured felt like it was just breaking. Felt like my life, my world was just crumbling down around me, like my soul was just being crushed. So here's the way I want to say it this morning. In the midst of our deepest pain, we are most desperate for an anchor. And church family, the anchor we need in the midst of our deepest pain is God. Now, here's here's the truth also about some of us in the audience. Maybe you don't even believe God exists. But one of our values at Trace, if that's you, you is for you to feel embraced and uplifted and loved on. This is not the kind of church where you have to believe to belong. Some of you may believe that God exists, but you've just drifted far, maybe because you're caught up in, in just some struggle in life. And some of you may have been hurt by people who say they believe in God, and you're telling yourself, man, if this is how people who say they believe in God treat other people, maybe I don't want anything to do with God. So I want to talk today about a couple of ways that, that we try to prove in ministry or in church that God exists, that God exists. So there are lots of ways I could try to make my case. I want to give you three ways that I feel like, in, a, in essence, prove that God exists. So the first way people kind of make the case that God exists is called the ontological premise. The ontological premise. Now, uh, through this talk, I'm going to really simplify some complex ideas just to boil it down to their simplest parts. But here's, in essence, what the ontological premise says. It says that I can't imagine anything that doesn't exist. And since I can't imagine a greatest being, then a greatest being must exist. So if you're competitive like me and a person like me says this and I'm in the audience, then you're probably doing what I would do if I was in the audience. You're going, Dr. T, I can think of Godzilla. I can think of King Kong. Like, come on, man. And I would say, you just proved my point. All you did was combine together things that already exist and make them a lot bigger than they actually are. So, so there was a guy that lived many, many years ago and this thought kind of occurred to him. I think he's the first person to give us this sense about the existence of God. Let me tell you about this man. There was a time in this guy's life where he was attacked by a lion and he somehow escapes and survives. True story. This same guy later is attacked by a bear, also survives. A handful of years later, this guy gets into a fight with a giant 
and using only a sling and a stone defeats the giant. You'd think from that moment, things just got better and better for this guy. He actually is responsible for killing another person. He, uh, one of his sons passes away. He ends up becoming a king. And this guy's name is David. And he wrote most of the poetry we have in our Bible. So he was this mighty warrior. And he was also this wonderful poet. And in the Bible, the books, the book that records all this poetry is called the book of Psalms. So there's a point in David's life where he's considering all that he's been through. Attacked by a lion, survived. Attacked by a bear, survived. Defeated a giant. Experienced just overwhelming difficulty like I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death itself. And he starts to think about how he made it through all that stuff. How he survived. How he overcame. How he endured. And he realized it took a great being, much greater than himself, the greatest being of all, to see him through the storms and trials of his life. And so he writes a poem about this. And the poem is the 145th Psalm. I want to read you a verse here. David says, great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. And when you think about how we measure things by height or weight or speed or distance, and when you think here's a guy that's in touch with the reality that a greatest of all great beings helped him overcome his toughest seasons in life and that that being, that God is so great it can't even be measured, I'd like to think that there's maybe no better anchor you could have in life than an anchor that is so great it can't be measured. The other argument, the other premise that people kind of use to prove, so to speak, the existence of God is called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. So simplified, here's what that sounds like. Because things that exist have a cause, there must be an uncaused causer of all things, a creator, a creator. And at Trace Church, we believe that the creator of all things is God. This is the first verse in your Bible. This is Genesis chapter one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I had a professor that would joke about the beginnings of earth or, or where the earth originated. And he would say, class, the earth had to start somewhere. So you got just a few options. Option one, maybe we're really in the matrix Maybe this is all computer programmed reality and your body heat's being used to power machines. Jokingly, he would then say, maybe it was aliens, right? Maybe aliens are responsible for all this. He'd then say, well, maybe this is just a twisted science experiment and all of us were really created in the last 30 seconds with an appearance of age and false memories of our lifetimes, He'd say, some people say the Big Bang is true, that out of nothing came everything. Or the last option, perhaps a loving, sovereign God created the universe and everything in it. So this same guy, David, at some point in life was feeling very inspired. And I don't know the background here, but apparently David is out in nature and maybe he's looking at the Mediterranean Sea 
Maybe he's overlooking some valley from the top of a mountain. Maybe David's watching the sunrise. Maybe he's watching the sunset. Maybe it's in the middle of the night and he couldn't sleep. And he walks outside and he looks at the stars and he sees the moon and something stirs within him and David feels inspired. And that inspiration was so pronounced that David, the warrior poet, writes another poem about what he saw. And we call this the 19th Psalm. And in the first verse, David says, the heavens, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Here's what I think will happen, friend. If you, if you allow yourself to get out in nature and you'll open your heart and you'll still your mind and you'll watch the sunset over the front range of the Rocky Mountains where you get up early enough to see the sun fall on that same front range as it rises in the early morning or, or stay awake into the night and look at the stars and the moon. If you'll do that and you'll allow your heart to be open and you'll still your mind, you'll, you'll feel a stirring. You'll feel inspiration and something in you will get in touch with something totally and completely above you that's greater than you. My wife and I were on vacation a couple of weeks ago and we're from Louisiana, so our thing was like to always go to the beach. We love the Gulf Shores, Florida Panhandle area and we were blessed to get to go this year. And I had just finished something for work and I know what you're thinking, Dr. T, what are you doing working on vacation? I know, I know, I gotta do better with my self-care. So I finished this work assignment. My whole family's in bed and I go out on the back porch to where we're staying and it's a full moon. It's late at night and, and the, the, the night is just still. The, the ocean is calm. And the light of the full moon seems like it just cuts this diamond pathway at the, on the top of the ocean. It just felt like I could see forever. And in that moment, in, in the deepest parts of my being, I felt a stirring and an inspiration to connect to the being who created all of this. And if you're gonna, if you're gonna have an anchor in life, let it be an anchor that created the entire universe. The sovereign Lord that the Bible describes is who's responsible for everything that we see. If you'll get out in nature and open your heart a part of you will reach out and feel inspired in that moment. Another way that we kind of prove or attempt to prove the existence of God is through what we call like the moral premise. Some people call it the moral argument. So simplified, here's what the moral argument says, that because humans have a conscience, there must be some higher conscience or moral absolute found in a creator. Now, when you hear something like this, there may be some of you whose minds wander a little bit and you go, Trent, I've heard stories about people who don't seem to have a conscience, who have done things so barbaric, so evil, that, that they can't have a conscience. 
And I would say, you know what? I've met some of those people driving around the streets of Colorado Springs when I first moved here. I mean, I got my turn signal on. People won't let me in. They're cutting me off in traffic. They're making obscene gestures to me as I'm innocently driving along the roads. And there was a man who lived many, many years ago that was that kind of a man, a man that we might call a man without a conscience. And this guy persecuted innocent people. And he tried to imprison them sometimes for their entire life. And in certain cases, he even tried to put to death these people that he persecuted. And the older this man gets, the the more and more uh, pain and agony he causes in life. Until one day he's on his way to put some people in jail and maybe even try to put some people to death. And he has this really powerful spiritual encounter with Jesus And it ends up totally transforming his life. And he dedicated the rest of his life to planning churches and doing missions work and writing letters to these little churches that he planted. And and those letters make up most of the books of our New Testament. This man's name is Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he talks about his transformation. And he talks about the consciousness and the conscience that he feels all people have. And in a letter he writes to Christians everywhere, specifically in Rome, here's what he says. When Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law, then these people who don't have the law become a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or defend them. Now, here's here's what Paul is saying. The Jewish people were the people who had the actual written law of God. It was first given to Moses in the form of the Ten Commandments. And as it got passed down, more and more laws were added until the Jews had a written law of 613 laws that they had to follow. And so as the church was beginning to get established, they were trying to get people to follow their laws and follow Jesus. And Paul writes this letter and he says, look, you already, those of you who are not Jews, who don't have the written law, you actually already have the law written on your heart. And what that means, Paul says, is it's that conscience that God created in you, that, that moral compass that God created in you. And it's what you feel. You can feel it when you do the wrong thing. It's, it's what accuses you. And when you do the right thing, it's that part of your mind and, and, your, and your soul that defends you and approves of your behavior. And that feels really, really good. And this is something that we can all relate to, but I wanna try to provoke you a little bit this morning, church. I want, to try to, I want to try to touch that part of you a little bit this morning, and it, it might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but just go with me on this. So I, want to, I want to show you a picture, and it's heavy. All right, team, take that picture off. I can't look at it anymore. So, so that picture was the picture of a child that was starving, and making its way to an aid station in South Sudan in the late 90s. And as this emaciated, starving, suffering, precious child 
is just desperately trying to make it to an aid station. There's a vulture in the background watching him. And when we look at that, church, when we see that, there is a part of our deepest soul that cries out, that's sad for this precious child, that's angry for this injustice, this suffering. And then if you're like me, you're asking all these questions like, where is this child's family? Where's this child's neighbor's neighborhood? How did this child get to this place? And who the heck is taking this photograph? And why doesn't this person just come to this child and pick the child up in his arms and make sure the child makes it to the aid station and survives? You feel that, and I feel that. And that's that moral part of you, your conscience that God instilled in, into you that calls you to action when you see something like this and that draws you close to God in the stormiest, most painful seasons of your life. So to give you the backstory or a little bit more of the story of this photograph, thankfully the child survived and made it to the aid station. And the photographer who was criticized for not helping the child responded and said that his media team was told when they went over there to photograph the genocide in South Sudan in the 90s, that they were asked not to touch or help uh, uh, the local population because of disease and danger. So he said, when I saw this scene, I thought that the best thing I could do to help this situation was take this photograph and expose it to the world so the world would be moved with compassion and act. So the story for the child is written in a way that is encouraging, thank God. But the story for the photographer doesn't end well. Because of what this photographer saw in South Sudan and because of other tragic experiences in his life, he took his own life a handful of years after he took this photo. As I was preparing for this talk, I wondered, man, what was going on with this guy? Where, where was his family? Where were his friends? And maybe most importantly, did he have an anchor? In the stormiest, most desperate moments of his life, did he have anything that could tether him and stabilize him and strengthen him in the midst of that storm? And I, I don't know. But I want that answer, I want the answer to that question in your life when your storm, when the storm in your life is raging, when you are going through a valley as deep as the valley of the shadow of death itself, I want you to have an anchor. So if we're reading the Bible from cover to cover, eventually you're gonna come across my favorite Bible story which is found in four books of the Bible. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those books of the Bible are about my favorite character in the Bible. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life of Jesus is a story of victory and triumph and love. It's also a story of tragedy and suffering and pain. The Lord Jesus Christ was abandoned by those closest to him. 
the Lord Jesus Christ was persecuted. He was beaten. And in the moment of his greatest struggle, in the moment of his greatest suffering, in the moment of his greatest pain, the Lord Jesus sought an anchor. And in Luke's gospel in the 23rd chapter, Jesus is being crucified and he's been beaten and he's been mocked and he's near death. And in this moment, when, it, when the suffering is overwhelming and the pain almost breaks him, he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he said that, he breathed his last. Now, when the, when the poetry in the Bible was written, when the Psalms were written, there were no numbers assigned to each Psalm to identify each Psalm. Instead, the Psalms would have been referenced by the first verse of the Psalm or by a famous verse in the Psalm. And when Jesus cries out to God in a loud voice here, he's actually reciting from a Psalm, from Psalm 31. And when we read Psalm 31, we realize what Jesus is actually calling out to say, what's happening in his mind and heart in this moment of his greatest pain. And Psalm 31 says, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you're my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord my faithful God. What Jesus is saying is, God, you're my anchor and I'm calling out to you. And if God is a good enough anchor for Jesus, then he's the only anchor we need in life. And in the midst of our greatest storms, we need an even greater anchor and I hope you'll follow after the leadership of Jesus. And when the pain in your life becomes overwhelming, and the storms in your life are raging, I pray you'll surrender your whole being into the safest place you can, the hands of God himself. We're gonna move into our response time. And I hope, I hope this has felt a little bit heavy. This is deep stuff. I hope you can carry that atmosphere into our response time. If you're new to Trace, at the four corners of this auditorium, we have communion set up. We invite you to take communion with our church this morning. And as you take communion, I hope you can just imagine whatever pain or trial you're going through. And I hope you can just imagine anchoring yourself to God by placing your situation in his hands. As you take communion, I'm gonna be praying you can just feel his presence protecting you and anchoring you and stabilizing you and strengthening you. This is also a time where you can give to the ministry here at Trace Church. You guys don't get to see everything that Trace Church does. I do because I'm behind the scenes and involved. I can't tell you the influence this church has on this community and how, 
how effectively we're extending hope when life hurts. I just thank you so much for your generosity and I would just love for you to uh, be a part of this ministry by giving. So after I pray, you can take communion, you can give on our app online or at some boxes in the back. Let's just enter into a time of response that I'm asking God will be encouraging, uplifting, strengthening, and anchoring. Let's bow. Precious Heavenly Father, come before you just so thankful for Jesus, so thankful for his example. God, in his moment of greatest struggle, he seeks you as an anchor and he surrenders himself into your hands. God, I just ask no matter what the storm anyone watching online or in our church family is battling, that in this moment, God, they will, they'll imagine themselves just being totally surrendered into the palm of your hands. And I pray they'd find strength and stability and an anchor in the midst of their storm. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.